So the success of the scientific method has been one of the greatest challenges to authority in the history of the world, certainly in the history of the West. Very few other cultures have any challenges to authority as a whole. Science has proven itself so unambiguously and universally powerful in reshaping societies, in reshaping our capacity to trust our own thoughts. Can we reason for ourselves? This is really the most foundational question in society as a whole. Can we reason for ourselves? Now, this goes all the way back to my graduate school thesis in the early 90s. If we can reason for ourselves, then we cannot be ruled by authority. If we cannot reason for ourselves, and if reason is in some other dimension, some other realm, then we are justifiably ruled by philosopher kings, by the enlightened ones whose conclusions cannot be communicated to us because they do not lie in the realm of reason and evidence. Now, in the battle between authority and reason, right? if you can reason for yourself, there is no such thing as external authority. There are external standards, such as adherence to reason and evidence, but if you can reason for yourself, then there's no justification for a hierarchical society where you are ruled by others, if you can reason for yourself. If you cannot reason for yourself, but there is reason out there somewhere in the universe that you can't access, but some people can, then the people who can access that other realm, that super reason, that realm of nirvana or the new aminal realm or the realm of forms, paradise of some kind, the people who can access that anti-rational realm of pure truth, but who can never communicate their conclusions to you, must rule over you in the same way that a little baby can't be reasoned with about, say, a medical treatment, but you still have the medical treatment. You have a little kid, you've got to take them to the dentist, you can't reason necessarily with them about the whole thing that's going on, you can't communicate why it's so important, but it has to be done anyway, so you have to exercise authority over them. Right? So if you have a truth that you can't communicate through reason and evidence, especially if that truth is morally superior, infinitely superior to reason and evidence, to the products of reason and evidence, then you have to rule over people because they can't think for themselves. Therefore, you have to force them to obey the good. So this is the conflict. Now, when we talked about Francis Bacon last time, Francis Bacon's development of the scientific method produced such unbelievable and incredible benefits and terrors. It's like it was the social media or the internet of its day. It produced immeasurable benefits and immeasurable immeasurable terrors to the general population. It produced a clear and cogent understanding of the universe as it was developing. But it also created terrifying weapons which reshaped warfare as a whole. So the development of the scientific method was used for good and for evil in the same way that fire can be used for cooking or for arson. A knife can be used to get food or a knife can be used to kill someone. The advancements in technology when you still had the power of the state were great boons and great terrors. The additional food production that characterized the late Middle Ages, where food production rose 10 times, 15 times, sometimes up to 20 times, and eliminated in vast swaths of Europe, eliminated 
starvation as a whole, you say, oh, well, that's wonderful. Yes, but, but the excess food production also allowed armies to get much bigger. Armies before were half-starved because of a lack of currency, because of the challenges of debt and the lack of excess resources to use as collateral for debt and lack of food. You can't have a big army. An army marches on its stomach, right? You can't have a big army if you don't have a lot of food. So you get a lot of food, then the population swells. And therefore, you can tax them more. With more taxes and more food, you can have bigger armies, which then goes about reducing the population. I'll mention something about the English civil wars here. I may just do a history thing as a whole, but the the history of philosophers to me is the most juicy at the moment. In the English civil wars, also known as the Wars of the Three Kingdoms, a greater percentage of the population was slaughtered in England at the time. A greater percentage of the population was slaughtered in England than in World War I and World War II combined which is really, really something. So we finally have, as a species, at least in the West, we have incontrovertible proof that empiricism and reason and evidence, the scientific method, has traction, has power, produces things. See, the, the higher realm, Plato's higher realm, suprasensual realm, what does it produce? Well, it produces power because some people can access this higher realm. They can't communicate its conclusions. Therefore, they have to rule over other people. Other people can't reason for themselves what is goodness and therefore they must be controlled and bullied and tyrannized into being good in the same way that traditional parenting has been, you know, you hit children to make them good. You make sure that children pursue virtue so they don't go to hell and, and you, but you can't explain it two kids, therefore you just have to control them and bully them. So the production of power was the goal. Well, the production of subjugation and power. If there's a universal truth that you must obey that can never be explained to you, you must just subjugate yourself to those who you believe or who can impose it upon you, who have access to this magical realm of pure truth and morality that you can't have any access to. The invisible friend hypothesis, right? I I have an invisible friend. And my invisible friend knows exactly what is true and moral and virtuous. And he whispers into my ear, I can't tell you anything about it, but you just have to trust me. My invisible friend is the person you have to obey. The invisible friend could be a kind of God. It could be a collective. It could be a nation state. It could be the world spirit, which we'll get to uh, later. Or get to Hegel. But someone has to have an invisible friend that whispers only to them. And you must obey, not them, but the invisible friend that you both agree is morally perfect or is worthy of sacrificing yourself for. The invisible friend is who you're obeying. No, it's not just me. It's not me. Because me, you'd have to debate with. We're both just people. We'd have to have to prove things to you. Oh, no, no, I have authority over you because I have an invisible friend who tells me all that is good and noble and virtuous. I can't communicate it to you because he only whispers to me and, you know, it's in a language that can't be translated into anything that you will understand, but just trust me. Trust me, man. You've got to subjugate yourself to the invisible friend. Don't shoot the messenger. I'm just here delivering the message of the invisible friend. Now, with the power 
of the scientific method, which rocked human consciousness in a way that did not replicate itself until the internet. Rocked human consciousness. Because now we finally have evidence of the truth value and power and traction of Aristotelian-style reason and evidence. Reason and evidence versus revealed mystical, quote, truth, which is winning. Well, imagine this. Imagine that there's country A and country B. Now, country A uses the scientific method to uh, produce food, to uh, understand the universe, to test and produce various kinds of weaponry. And country B uses mysticism and revelation and and the new amenal realm of, of pure platonic form in order to produce food and to produce a weaponry and, and to try to produce wealth. Country A versus country B. So we have an empirical test in terms of power. Now, country B will tend to enslave its population more because of this revealed realm, as we just talked about. But country A produces more food, more people, a greater tax base, and far better weaponry. In the chilly interstellar amoral spaces inhabited by countries, who wins? Who wins? Well, we look at uh, Bacon, and I would argue in this case we look at Hobbes, which we'll get to in a sec, and we have a test. Who ended up ruling a third of the globe? It was England. Because England produced science, the free market, the end of slavery, and the subjugation of citizens based on contract, not mysticism. The social contract, which, I mean, Hobbes is largely responsible for developing. So the, the rulers love the mystical realms, the invisible friend that whispers to them and to their people, you must obey me because I'm the only one with access to this invisible friend who's always right and is perfect and demands that you obey me. There was a contest within and between states, nations. If you pursue reason and evidence, you lose some power over your citizens, but you gain power in taxation, armies, and weaponry. If you enslave your citizens less, in other words, think for yourself, but only in the, re- in the realm of reason and evidence, and and science, not in the realm of morals or society or government. Reason for yourselves. Wow, do we ever get a lot of taxes? Do we ever get a lot of weaponry? Do we ever get big armies? Which we can use to subjugate and dominate those who are more mystical, who derive greater authority but less productivity through their addiction to the invisible friend mysticism. Subjugation paradigm. And the 30 years war that was occurring in Europe was largely this. It was as it was in the case of the English Civil War, Parliament versus royalty. Parliament versus royalty. The royalty, of course, is the invisible friend, the divine right of kings. I have an invisible friend who says, you must obey me, who's all-knowing and all-perfect and all that. Versus those who want Parliament to represent the new bourgeoisie, the traditional small government, low taxes, large free market, 
what's called the bourgeoisie and the Marxist analysis, we would call it the middle class, generally under attack by leftists uh, since day one, and particularly in France. Maybe we'll get to the French Revolution tangentially, the brutalities of that and the lies about that as well. So the tension between Parliament, which was more reason and evidence, dem- democratic representation, the will of the people, which is still a collective concept and, and so on, but it's more rational than the invisible friend hypothesis, the tension between the relative reason and evidence of Parliament and the mysticism and tyranny of royalty, well, it went on for it went on for thirty years in Europe at a time when England was largely peaceful, and then it went on for quite some time in England after the Treaty of Westphalia, when England was facing this battle between the king and the Parliament. And this is the stage that we're in when we start to talk about Thomas Hobbes. Let's do a little historical framing and backgroundishness. He was born in 1588 in Malmesbury, Wiltshire. Now, 1588, of course, was the approach of the Spanish Armada, one of the great potential European-changing conflicts in history. And he was the youngest son of a country cleric. The country cleric was fairly disreputable, uh, which we'll get to uh, later. And Hobbes repeated the story that his mother went into labor when she heard that the Spanish Armada was approaching. So this is what Hobbes said, quote, Fear and I were born twins together. And his ideas were fairly radical, although incredibly useful, to the displacement of the invisible friend hypothesis of social or political subjugation, which is, I'll make the case, this is sort of why we know of him, why he's famous. I I really want to push back against this idea that history is chugging along and some philosopher jumps in through the window of the car. The car is a history going down, right? And, and a philosopher comes in and grabs the wheel and changes the direction of history. Uh, no, that's, that's not how it goes. What happens is history is changing. Society is changing. Poli- political power is changing. And so what politicians need is someone to justify their continued power in the face of changing circumstances. And so they grab at a philosopher who will help them do that. And a philosopher who helps them do that becomes famous. And a philosopher who does not help them do that uh, is, uh, is attacked and uh, ignored. So Hobbes did meet some of Europe's greatest thinkers, including Descartes and so on. And his ideas were considered fairly radical. In his time, he was in constant... I don't know, anxiety, unease, fear, terror of being persecuted. Uh, And he was persecuted at a time. He was exiled to France for some time, and he held anti-Catholic views. When he returned to England, he was accused of being an atheist and writing about atheistic philosophies, and he burnt some of his own work as a result of this investigation. But he did make it. Uh, He he, um, was still productive into his 80s, and he died in Hartwick, Derbyshire in 1679. So let's uh, dip in a little bit more and then we'll, to him, and then we'll get into the political circumstances. He did a whole bunch of, he was not exactly the, uh, he was a Renaissance man. He was a jack-of-all-trades, master of one, I think. His reputation is mostly because of his political philosophy, but he had a lot of wide-ranging interests and In the realm of philosophy, he was similar to Locke in his 
metaphysics and his epistemology, but not in terms of people's ability to determine what is truly true or false or truly right and wrong. He worked in physics. He was influential on Leibniz, and he was a great translator and historian. He translated Thucydides' History of the Peloponnesian War into English, and then later on he wrote his own History of the Long Parliament. He did quite a bit in mathematics, but was considered less successful. He, I shouldn't laugh, but he was remembered mostly for his fairly compulsive and unsuccessful attempts to square the circle. So he did quite a bit of, uh, of useless stuff in, in mathematics. So Hobbes's great goal was to figure out how a state can be justified, how a society can be structured under secular authority in a way that is compelling to the citizen. So again, not the, the purpose of science, the purpose of Baconian science, was not to undermine the authority of the king, but that's what it did. Because as science pushed back the concept of God from people's immediate existence, as science pushed back the concept of miracles to the distant past in other lands, it eroded the invisible friend hypothesis that was the foundation of aristocratic power, of the king's power, the divine right of kings. Why should you rule over me? Well, because I have an invisible friend who's perfectly right, but I can never tell you what he's saying, so you just have to obey me because uh, I'm obeying him. In other words, you have to invent someone or something far bigger than yourself and then tell people to obey that other thing, and it doesn't have to be a god, it could be any number of things. But only you can understand what he's saying. It's funny because I remember reading a poem when I was a little kid and it branded itself in my brain almost in preparation 50 plus years later for this recording. And it was a kid who had an invisible friend. And he went to his parents and he said, my invisible friend would like a chocolate bar, but I'm going to have to eat it for him because his teeth are kind of new. Give me the chocolate bar for my invisible friend, but I'm going to have to eat it. Right? Give me the power that you owe. Give me the subjugation that you owe to my invisible friend, but I'll have to exercise it because his teeth are rather new. <laughs> so he was looking for a way to justify the subjugation of the citizens to authority, to the state, which didn't rely upon the divine right of kings because he was a materialist. Uh, he later got into trouble to some degree for saying that God was material and, and so on, right? But he, didn't, he was not a mystic. So he, had to, he wanted to find a way to justify the state in the absence of the divine right of kings. Because he lived through a period of significant political disintegration that ended up in the English Civil War, which was absolutely appalling. Civil, the Civil War was not geographical in nature. The Civil War was between the parliamentarians and the royalists, right? The people who wanted a parliament that limited the power of the king, particularly saying that the king could not raise taxes without the assent of the parliament, that the king could not go to war just on his own whim, to limit the power of the king. So the parliamentarians came out of the Baconian tradition, and the royalists came out of the Platonic, or the divine right of kings tradition. Now this 
division was not geographical in the same way that the American Civil War was. It ran through the heart of every family. It ran through the heart of every region. Even in the most pro-royalist regions, you could find parliamentarians. In the most pro-parliamentarian regions, you, uh, regions, you could find the royalists. Brother was set against brother, father against son. It was absolutely brutal. And as I said before, had one of the highest percentages of slaughter in the British Isles, in the three kingdoms that had ever existed in the history of the British Isles. Now, it's tough to speak for someone long dead, but I would imagine that he was so horrified by the civil wars, and remember, he'd seen the wars that had consumed Europe in the Thirty Years' War, which was largely against uh, about religious freedom, whether it's Catholicism or Protestantism or various flavors of Protestantism that was going to hold sway, when he saw everyone trying to grab hold of the sword of the state to impose their own religious or mystical views on others, and then the same infection in a sense, but it was more between secular power and religious power through the divine right of kings, infect the British Isles. He said that even the most oppressive government was, quote, scarce sensible in respect of the miseries and horrible calamities that accompany a civil war. So it's better to have the most oppressive government you could think of than to have a civil war. So just about any government is better than a civil war. And all but the most absolute of governments generally tend towards a dissolution into civil war. So what's the solution? Well, people have to just subjugate themselves to an absolute totalitarian political authority. Now, remember, totalitarianism was a little bit different back in the day because it didn't have the same technology and it didn't have the same tracking ability and it couldn't deduct wages at source. So it was sort of limited by lack of communication, lack of transportation, lack of information as a whole. So we don't want to think that of his totalitarianism in the same way that we'd, we would look at modern Cuba or we would look at the hellscape of Big Brother in the fictional government of 1984. So absolute political authority was very much limited by, uh, again, lack of transportation, lack of communication, lack of information, lack of control over uh, resources and, and currency and so on. So... He was a totalitarian in terms of the powers that governments could have. Now, that's pretty tough to justify, right? How do you justify subjugation to a totalitarian regime? That was his big problem, his big question. And again, because he saw the slaughterhouse around him when there were conflicts over state power, when the narrative underpinning state power dissolved or was under threat or split or bifurcated, then the fragmentation of ideas is like shrapnel into the bodies of the citizenry. When ideas fragment, they explode into shrapnel, literally swords and bombs into the bodies of the citizenry. Now, the question of the state of nature was huge in this time, in the um, 16th and 17th centuries in Europe, for a couple of reasons. One is that when the divine right of kings began to shatter and fragment in people's minds, the question was, okay, well, if there's no divine right of kings, what is the justification, if any, for political power? 
if human beings are just human beings and none has an invisible friend who whispers eternal and incommunicable secrets into his ear that allows him to justifiably command and subjugate everyone in his environment, what is the justification for political power? And should we not maybe have a state of nature? So that was sort of one question. Now, the other question was, or the other information was, the discovery of the New World and the indigenous populations of North America and South America in particular, people who lived without nations. What was their life like? Was it good? Was it bad? Was it better? Was it worse? And there was a lot of propaganda about all of this sort of stuff, just as there is about the indigenous populations around the world in general. There's a huge amount of propaganda about this kind of stuff because it's really powerful. It's really powerful to say, well, the people who exist without the state are flourishing and having a wonderful time and and it's benevolent and great and wonderful. Uh, Or the people who exist without a state, it's nature red in tooth and claw and, and all of that. So there's the big question. If the divine right of kings is shattered, by the scientific method is something going to take its place and justify the subjugation of man by man or are we going to try a stateless society? This was the big question. Now, Locke, which we'll get to, Hobbes' near descendant, he said, and this is in the second treatise of government, Locke said, oh, a state of nature is way better than an absolute sovereign. A state of nature is way better than totalitarianism. But Hobbes didn't agree. Now, Hobbes came first, so he kind of set the stage. So Hobbes argued, here's a quote, that such a dissolute condition of masterless men, without subjection to laws, and a coercive power to tie their hands from rapine and revenge, well, that's impossible. You can't have any security. You can't have any property. You can't have any property rights. You can't have any industry or contracts or savings or anything like that. There would be, this is a quote from Hobbes, no place for industry because the fruit thereof is uncertain and consequently no culture of the earth, no navigation, no use of the commodities that may be imported by sea, no commodious building, no instruments of moving and removing such things as require much force, no knowledge of the face of the earth, no account of time, no arts, no letters, and, which is worst of all, continual fear and danger of violent death, and the life of man, solitary, poor, nasty, brutish, and short. Ah, you see, so without a tyrannical government, life is hell on earth. Now, of course, we've heard this. Everybody knows this instinctually or has been indoctrinated or instructed in this argument, right? That if power, political power is removed from environment, chaos, murder, gangs, rapine, like all of this horrible stuff will erupt. That the human spirit is a barely controlled animal that requires a strong leash and chains. Otherwise, it will attack everyone in its vicinity, including itself. Right, so the, the people are a sea of violence barely restrained by the whip-like authority of totalitarianism. Right? You know this, I mean, if you've argued for we, don't, we shouldn't have the welfare state, ah, oh, well then people would just starve in the streets. Uh, socialized medicine bad, oh, then sick people will die in the streets. Government education is indoctrination, oh, but then nobody will be educated, right? So in the absence of political power, 
chaos and destruction reigns. And that is the fundamental argument that was advanced by Hobbes. And it is the argument that has held sway to this day, right? I mean, just look at the word anarchy. Anarchy means without rulers. That's all it means, without rulers. And yet anarchy has been reframed as chaos, gangs, murder, a power vacuum producing this uh, horrifying environment of Mad Max beyond the Thunderdome chaos, right? It comes out of Hobbes. And it's a curse. Freedom is violence. Therefore, you must be enslaved. Right? So I call this the war of the slaves. Right? The war of the slaves. The people who want to be enslaved by parliament versus the people who want to be enslaved by the king. They're violently at war with each other. Violently at war with each other. Over who gets to rule them. It's horrifying. Appalling. It's the blackest comedy in history. It's the war of the slaves. Now, it's a little tough to know whether this state of nature is hypothetical or whether it is considered real. So Hobbes says, okay, look, here's, here's three examples of states of nature. He says, look, if you look at countries, then countries exist in a state of nature with each other. And, of course, he could look and point to the Thirty Years' War in Europe saying, look what happens when countries don't have an overarching power to keep them in line a super government, a, a UN on steroids or whatever, right? They're constantly at war with each other. So there's a state of nature. They don't negotiate with each other. constantly at war with each other. Now, I personally think that's a terrible argument because <laughs> if you're in a state of nature with respect to another human being, you can go and fight them and you yourself will suffer the negative consequences of that fight. Even if you win, you might be wounded gravely or damaged or injured gravely. Whereas a sovereign who goes to war with another sovereign does not put himself usually on the front lines, uh, taxes other people uh, to pay for it, and does not pay any personal costs himself, usually. Yeah, sometimes it happens, but not usually. So a, a country is not a person, and saying that countries are in a state of nature with each other, and that's exactly the same as people being in a state of nature with each other, is not, not, the, case, not the case. So he said... If you look at the civilized people in the world and compare them to the past, and he said, here's a window into the past, was the uh, people, uh, what he referred to as, quote, the savage people in many places of America, he said, well, they're in a state of nature, and this is better than what they have, right? They, they scalp people, they enslave uh, each other, they wage war against each other. I mean, I don't think the word genocide was, was used at the time, but we do understand that the tribes of uh, North America did attempt genocide against each other on a fairly regular basis. Rape was used as a weapon of war. And so he said, look, that's that's where we came from, and, and we would assume that even a tyranny is better than that kind of life. And he said, look, if you want to see what a state of nature is, just look at any formerly functional government that has collapsed into a civil war. And if you look at where state power has fragmented because people no longer believe a central narrative such as the divine right of kings, well, that's a state of nature. So that's pretty terrible as well. But of course, a civil war is over control of the state. If there is no state, then the civil war would be to impose a state, I suppose. But the civil war was over control 
of the state. So saying, well, the alternative to states is perpetual civil war when the civil war is being fought over a state. It's like saying the family is, is in massive conflict over the $10 million in great-grandmother's will. They're fighting over great-grandmother's will. And therefore, even if the money turns out to be illusory or everything is distributed according to everyone's sense of fairness, that the family will still continue to fight when there's no money to fight over. Right? So if you take away political power, the civil war will be about what? Well, it could be to impose a state, but that's a whole different matter. But it will not be the same as if there is a state. So Hobbes mildly said, yeah, a monarchy is probably better than other forms of government. But his main point was to say it doesn't matter so much what the form of government is. It only matters that the state has absolute authority. There's no separation of powers, no division or limitation of powers. So the power to tax, the power to enforce laws, the power to resolve disputes, both civil and criminal, the power of legislation and war, that they all must be centralized in the same place. Right? There can't be this king versus parliament. There can't be this one party versus another party as much. It's all got to be vested in the same entity because, again, we saw that what happened with the English Civil War is the king didn't want to deal with parliament. So he just didn't call parliament for a long, long time. People got kind of angry and then he tried raising taxes without the approval of parliament, which was supposed to follow, and this began to cause these kinds of conflicts. So I said, look, if you divide powers between the king and the parliament, you're going to end up with a civil war. So the state has to have within its bosom every single power has to be right there, and it can't be divided. Because if it's divided, you set the stage for civil war, which is the worst thing ever. So the argument was, look, if you consent to something, you can't claim that a wrong was done unto you. So if you go into a boxing ring, you are consenting to be hit, and then you can't sue someone for assault. If you go and play hockey, you're consenting to some rough treatment. You can't whine and complain that you got uh, checked or something like that, right? So no wrong is done to a consenting party. Ah, so that is the question. How do you get the citizens to consent? Because once they consent, they can't complain about the power of the state. Now that is a very, very big question. And, of course, Hobbes is famous for his solution. So what is Hobbes saying here? He insists that, quote, the external actions done in obedience to laws without the inward appropriation are the actions of the sovereign and not of the subject, which is in that case but as an instrument without any motion of his own at all. Ah, what does he mean by that? Well, he's basically saying that if someone forces you to rob a bank, or they've got a gun to your back, or they kidnap your kids until you rob the bank, then you don't get tried and convicted for robbing a bank. Right? Then the criminal who's got you at gunpoint or kidnapped your kids gets tried for two things. One, robbing the bank, and two, the immoral action that he did to get you to rob the bank for him. So that's the big question, because if there's a standard outside the state, 
particularly for Christians. Of course, Christians famous for opposing state power because where state power conflicts with God's laws, it is preferable to disobey the state and gain access to heaven than to obey the state and lose your soul to hell. So what is he trying to say to particularly the Christians? He's saying, look, if the government forces you to do something, that does no harm to your immortal soul. The actions are all on the soul of the sovereign, and therefore to obey tyranny puts you at no risk of going to hell. Right? So Hobbes explains this, quote, Whatsoever a subject is compelled to do in obedience to his sovereign, and doth it not in order to his own mind, but in order to the laws of his country, that action is not his, but his sovereign's. So, there's no conflict between the orders of the sovereign and the conscience of the Christian, because the orders of the sovereign mean that the morality of the action resides only on the conscience and soul of the sovereign. It does no harm whatsoever to the citizen. Well, that's not, I mean, obviously, that's a morally horrible idea, but that's how he worked to justify this. So where does he get this idea of subjugation to tyranny? Well, of course, childhood is an important place, although very little is written about the childhood of famous people and famous philosophers in history because very little is is known about it and the need to get information about it wasn't really understood at the time. So we don't know much about Hobbes' mother, but his father, also named Thomas Hobbes, was a bit of a wild card, I guess almost literally, when it came to being a clergyman or a, a vicar. So here's a story about Thomas Hobbes the Elder, which comes from a 17th century biographer of Thomas Hobbes called John Aubrey. He says, quote, The old vicar Hobbes was a good fellow and had been at cards Saturday all night, and at church in his sleep he cries out, Traffels is trumps, i.e. clubs are trumps. And by 1604 he had to leave Malmesbury because he got into a conflict with another clergyman, and they ended up having a fairly brutal fistfight in the churchyard. In Aubrey's words, quote, Hobbes stroke him and was forced to fly for it. So a fair amount of brutality and violence from his father. We can assume that if the father's willing to get into brutal fistfights with another clergyman, he was probably fairly brutal towards his own children. Now, because of his relationship to the ideas that were swirling around the civil wars in England, Hobbes had to spend a decade in Paris. He left England late in 1640 and didn't get back until 1651. Hobbes was associated with the royalist side, and because he defended absolute totalitarian sovereignty, uh, he was not welcome on the parliamentary side, because the parliamentary side was there to impose limits upon state power. So it was late in his time in France that Hobbes wrote Leviathan, his major political work, which was published in 1651. Now, in terms of metaphysics and epistemology, Hobbes is in the realm of empiricism, he says, look, all of our ideas come from sensation, either directly or indirectly. 
And he says, look, we can imagine things. We can put a man and a horse together. We can get a centaur. We can put a horn and a horse together. We can get a unicorn. But, uh, you know, we can't come up with anything particularly new. And it's a big question before people understood how eyes work and wavelength works and light works. Okay, what is red? Well, red... Hobbes says, red in the object is just motions in the object, and red in us is just motions within us, and that gives rise to or are a certain sensation. Now, is the red in the object itself? Is red in the sensation within us? Well, he doesn't really try to differentiate those, and science was pretty early in trying to understand uh, this kind of stuff. So, as far as the brain's access to material reality, it's a little six of one, half a dozen of the other in his mind. And what I find frustrating with Hobbes is normally empiricism leads to, okay, you can understand the workings of an objective universe through the evidence of your senses. A reason is your guide to classifying and understanding the information provided to you by the senses, therefore you can think for yourself, and therefore we should limit political power over you because no man can outthink another to the degree that he can enslave him because every man has the ability to think for himself. So how does Hobbes get from being a materialist and an empiricist to a totalitarian authoritarian of the very worst kind? Well, that's, that's to me, that's a very fascinating journey. Because he does reject the universal abstract, anti-rational, anti-empirical world of forms. So this is called being a nominalist. The only universal things are names. So the word rock is a conceptual label for all the objects that have rockness in common. So you've got one concept called rock that represents many rocks itself. So you've got rocks, individual rocks. You notice the patterns and things that they have in common. This gives rise to a concept in the mind called rocks as a whole. But there's no further thing beyond that. No universal platonic rock. So rock names the characteristics of each individual rock that they have in common. But there's no rockness that is larger than the concept in your mind. It's not represented by anything universal or grandiose or platonic in that sense. Now, he believes that, and this is by the time of writing Leviathan, he's, he accepts or believes, I shouldn't say accepts because that's putting my own flavor in, he believes that human beings are entirely material. And even the mind is entirely material. And later on, he got to the place where he said, God is a kind of material being. Now, that, that's a wild thing, of course, because by saying that human beings, even the mind, are material, he's denying the soul to a large degree. By saying that God is material, he's denying divinity. And of course, by saying that God is material, by putting God in the bounds of the universe, he is implicitly, I don't know if he did it explicitly, but he's implicitly denying the capacity of God to produce miracles. 
And that's probably why he got investigated for, for atheism. Now, Hobbes does draw a pretty thick line between philosophy and theology. Because reasoning from first principles according to sense data is the job of philosophy, and theology has a revelation and divinity and inspiration and does not need to resolve the same kind of contradictions that science and philosophy does, you can't put theology in philosophy. And here's the quote. Thus, philosophy excludes from itself theology, as I call the doctrine about the nature and attributes of the eternal, ungenerable, and incomprehensible God, and in whom no composition and no division can be established, and no generation can be understood. The purpose of science and philosophy is to divide, to classify, but God can't be subdivided. It's not composed of anything else. I wouldn't say sort of it's a big blob of incomprehensibility, but it's not susceptible to the kind of division and classification and reasoning that the world is and philosophy aims for. Now, this doesn't make Hobbes an atheist, even with his materialistic conception of God. Hobbes continually repeats that that God exists and so on, and you could say, ah, yes, well, but he's materialist, but he was only saying that because of the strictures of the time and not wanting to be investigated for atheism and so on. But you you, you got to go with what the guy said. Impugning other motives for which there are no evidence tends to be rather unproductive, to put it mildly. It's distracting, really. So, of course, if you remember that Hobbes fled from England to France 1640 to 1651, what was happening right before then, this is the late 1630s, King Charles I and Parliament are really at each other's throats. And basically, the question is, we got your normal kingly powers, and then there are exceptional situations or circumstances, particularly raising money for armies. How far can the king go to achieve these things? Is he limited by the parliament? And, of course, we have the same thing going on in the modern world. And we just look at COVID. How far can we go out of social norms in an emergency? And, of course, if the sovereign, if the leader, if the prime minister, if the president, if whoever, if the leader can assume extraordinary powers in an emergency, if the ruler can extend his powers enormously because there's an emergency, then, of course, the problem is going to be that rulers will invent continual emergencies in order to extend their powers. A parliament said, look, the raising of taxes for armies, that's ours. It's like, ah, yes, but, you know, you guys haven't been together for a while. It's like, well, it's because you're not calling us, and that's your, your job. No, but it's a real emergency. I don't have time to go through the normal things. Right? We saw this with COVID. Was there a debate about the extraordinary powers that governments assumed because of COVID? There was none, because they said it's an emergency. It's a very, very short time. It's only two weeks to flatten the curve, and, and so on. So when the government expands its powers because of an emergency, the government or the ruler has every incentive to continue to manufacture these emergencies in order to extend his or her power. Now, in 1640, Hobbes wrote a fairly detailed treatise saying, oh, the king could interpret it and cast as wide a net as possible in the assumption of his powers. And the people who were in parliament who were royalists used Hobbesian arguments in their 
debates, and the treatise was circulated in like a samizdat or manuscript form, and it's called The Elements of Law, Natural and Politic, and it was written in 1640, and it was messed up and published in an unauthorized manner in 1650. This was Hobbes' first work as political philosophy. And this is why when the strife became acute and you've got parliamentarians using your arguments, uh, that's probably quite a, a lot of power for a relatively young man, and this is why he bailed and fled to Paris. So we've got a couple of threads cooking here. First of all, Hobbes's father, the dissolute, gambling, and violent clergyman, got into a fist fight, got into a brutal fight, had to flee, abandoned his family as the result of violence. So we've got this personal chaos that comes out of violence and a lack of subjugation to the law, to the moral law, to the Christian law, to the law of the state, right? So there's a state of nature here that wrecked his entire childhood. And then we've got the strife growing between King Charles and the Parliament. And this, of course, is occurring much later in Hobbes' life, right? Most of what we remember about Hobbes, if not all of it, was stuff that he got out after after the age of 60. He was kind of old because he lived for a long time, but he was kind of old. So he wrote something in Paris in his exile time, 1640 to 1651, called De Chive. Now, this was a real canon at Aristotle. And it starts off really strong against Aristotle. So Aristotle, in his politics, said that man is a political animal. That to be in a political environment, to be in a polis, was the essence of humanity, and you can't really become a human being, you can't really become a moral agent or a moral entity unless you're exercising your role in a polis as a citizen, as natural. Now Hobbes, of course... The social contract theory was around before Hobbes, but Hobbes was the guy who pushed it to justifying absolutism. So social contract theory says, okay, forget the divine right of kings. We have a government because it protects us, right? Because it protects our property, it protects our lives. But of course, the problem then becomes, as governments tend to do, they tend to start off with great promises to protect persons and property and end up raising taxes, starting wars, and drafting citizens. So if you have a service provider called the state to protect your persons and property. What happens when the state stops protecting your persons and property? Well, then you have to have a revolution. But so often, of course, the revolution goes bad. And we can see this happening, of course, all throughout history. The people say, ah, the state is no longer serving my protection and my security. So uh, we're going we're gonna to take up arms and revolution against the state. And it generally turns really bad. So Hobbes is faced with the challenge of how do I extend the social contract theory so that the state can be absolute. Now, he did allow a little bit here and there. So Hobbes would say, okay, look, if the state is coming to directly kill you, then maybe that like unjustly or whatever, like you're just some innocent guy and the state's coming to kill you, maybe you can have a sort of rebellion and so on. But if the state's just, you know, raising taxes and, and jailing dissidents and all of that, then you've still got to obey it because the alternative is worse. So Aristotle makes the case that man is a naturally political animal, that, that politics and the state and the country and the laws is his natural state. 
And Hobbes says, no, 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 absolutely not. The, the state, the life of politics, the life within a collective called the country is absolutely unnatural to human beings, but it's a necessary unnaturalness. Right? The, the natural state of the lion is to hunt. If you want to have a lion that human beings can be around, you've got to put it in a zoo. The zoo is unnatural, but it's the only safe place for the lion if you want to keep people protected, right? So he says, look, in the state of nature, prior to politics, let's look at people outside of political life. Well, they're vainglorious, they're violent, they want to subjugate others, they're lazy, they want to steal, they want to rape, they just want to do absolutely horrible things with each other. And there's no common obligation, there's no sacrifice of the self for the good of the collective, there's nothing like that. It's just violence and subjugation and, and all of that. War is the state, natural state of human beings, not political order. And again, this is partly informed by the violence that people saw going on in the indigenous tribes of North America, some of which, of course, was justified because the white men were coming to uh, invade, although it's a little tough to understand what invasion means when you don't have any concept of particular land property. But nonetheless, they were aggressed against by the Europeans coming, and therefore the violence that we can see being pushed back against the Europeans coming is certainly understandable, but from the European perspective looked extraordinarily violent and did not adhere to any of the rules of war that were nominally the case in European conflicts. So in the state of nature, it's the war of all against all. This is the naughty, brute, nasty, brutish, violent, and short life. And so we can't trust anybody to not be violent against us in the absence of a sovereign. So you and I look at each other in the eye and say, look, we're going to kill each other if left alone. So what we're going to do is we're going to cede our liberty to kill each other because the liberty that we have will only be to kill each other in, in effect. We cede our liberties to this external guy, this, this power, this state, this, it could be a parliament. He's slightly more in favor of a king. We're going to cede our liberties to this guy because it's the only way we can actually get any real liberties because in the absence of this guy to control us, to have an overwhelming force to keep us in line. In the absence of that, the only freedom we practically have is the freedom to steal from and kill each other and starve to death because we are not going to plant any crops and we'll steal each other's uh, food and so on, right? So the maximum liberty that we can have is liberty from violence, and the only way that we can get liberty from violence, according to Hobbes, is to subjugate ourselves to a state. Now, He's not saying that this was a formal contract written in blood between rulers and subjects, but I think he would say that society evolved so that people who refused to subjugate themselves to a state ended up being wiped out or absorbed into those who were willing to subjugate themselves to a state. Like, you're going to end up being ruled by a state either way. You're either going to kill each other a whole bunch of in a state of nature beforehand, or you voluntarily, in a sense, create this contract to subjugate yourself to a state so you can get some reasonable protections of property, of invasion, of security, of a reduction in violence. So in a very real, tangible way, he's saying you can't be harmed by the state because the state is there by your permission, by your acceptance of the social contract, and to stay within the government is to accept this social contract, right, love it or leave it, right? And it is the maximum freedom that you can get is subjugation to an all-powerful state. 
because in the absence of that, it's a war of all against all. And it's a very powerful argument. It's a very powerful argument. I mean, there's lots of ways to argue against it, but I'm trying to sort of really present the Hobbesian view of life as a whole and why we would enter into this contract to allow the ruler to do with us what he will because the alternative is always worse. It really is obey or hell, right? The threat of hell is the invisible friend thing, right? The do what my invisible friend says or you'll go to hell. Obey the ruler, not because to disobey the ruler will mean that you go to hell eventually, right? Because if it's the divine right of kings, then to obey the ruler, to obey the king is to obey God. If you disobey God, you go to hell. If you disobey God's representative called the king, you go to hell. And Hobbes is saying, let's make that purely material. Forget about the afterlife. I'm not saying he didn't believe in the afterlife. This is the argument is, the hell is going to happen the moment that people stop obeying the state. It's not an abstract or a theoretical. We didn't come out of heaven and through original sin we are cursed by the state because you didn't need a state in the Garden of Eden. No, no, no. We came out of hell and the, what, the entity that dragged us out of hell and gave us a relatively civilized life is the all-powerful state. And if we do not accept the all-powerful state, we go straight back to hell in the here and now, war of all against all. Now, again, because you enter into the social contract in order to protect you, right, the fact that, let's say, you get $2 a day in a state of nature, you can only produce $2 a day, but under a state, you get $20 a day of productivity, but the state taxes you at 50%. He'd say, look, you're still five times better off than you are in a state of nature. In a state of nature, you get $2 a day. Under a state, you produce $20 a day. The state takes half. You're still 10 is five times two. You're still... 500% better off in a state than you are in a state of nature. So you are gaining by subjugating yourself to the state because the alternative is, again, the war of all against all and starvation and, and nothing. Now, Hobbes did suggest in Leviathan that if the state is going to kill you, if the state is going to strip you of everything that you need to live, and by you, he doesn't mean an individual, he means the citizenry as a whole, Well, then you can abandon the social contract, but this got him in trouble in France, which is one of the reasons why, when he was in Paris, he ended up bailing back to England in uh, 1651, around the end. This is around the time that Leviathan was published. He came back to England, and he made some relative peace with Oliver Cromwell's new regime and submitted to the authority of Oliver Cromwell for... Uh, nine years or so, until the monarchy was was restored in 1660. Now, when a more absolute monarch was restored to the throne, this is Charles II, in 1660, Hobbes was popular again with the king. Charles II received Hobbes again into prominence and favor, and it was pretty scandalous to some of the court people, the bishops and the chancellor. The king found the wit of Hobbes enormously enjoyable. He gave Hobbes a pension of £100 a year and had a portrait of Hobbes hung in the royal closet. And then 1666, then there was a bill against atheism being prepared by the House of Commons, and Hobbes again felt in significant danger. He's verging on 80 and burned the papers that he thought might get him in trouble with the bills against uh, atheism and profanity or profaneness. 
So I'm going to close with my analysis of Hobbes from 30 years ago for my graduate school thesis. My graduate school thesis was that people who believe in, quote, higher realities that are against reason and evidence end up advocating for a dictatorship, and those who believe in the comprehensibility of reason to understand the evidence of the senses in in an objective manner, they end up advocating for limited government, small government, uh, and more of the parliamentary or democratic side of things, or a republic. So here's what I wrote 30-plus years ago. Hobbes represents a special case for our analysis. Metaphysically, he agrees with Locke's belief in an external objective reality and the validity of the senses. From this sensual base, however, he deviates in his conception of epistemology and ethics by arguing that the individual does not possess the capacity to determine truth and falsehood and good from evil. One of the reasons for this may be that where Locke did not appear to subscribe to the doctrine of original sin, Hobbes does, and thus the ability of the individual to determine good from evil is seriously compromised. Hobbes, in fact, called belief in the validity of individual moral judgment a seditious doctrine. This compromise leaves the individual without access to objective morality, thus removing the possibility of judging the enlightened despot by a moral standard higher than his own will. Because of this deviation, Hobbes begins with sensual premises and ends with suprasensual epistemology, ethics, and politics. So just sort of break down that language. I had sensual, which is sense-based reasoning, and suprasensual, which was something higher than the senses and higher than reason where the real truth is. Right, so... Individual moral judgment was a seditious doctrine, according to Hobbes, because, of course, a Christian who is ordered to do something against the teachings of Christ and the Ten Commandments by the ruler, the Christian has to choose disobedience. And the disobedience, of course, for Hobbes leads to civil war and violence and so on, endless war of all against all. So he says, look, the individual can't morally judge things, which is why he places the moral responsibility on the sovereign and not the person that the sovereign is ordering. So when I write, because of this deviation, right, sorry, this, this compromise leaves the individual without access to objective morality, thus removing the possibility of judging the enlightened despot by a moral standard higher than his own will, which is the will of the enlightened despot. Because of this deviation from what Locke was arguing, Hobbes begins with sensual premises in metaphysics and ends with suprasensual epistemology, ethics, and politics. So I go on to write, I went on to write, Hobbes Hobbes' materialistic approach posited that human consciousness was a faculty of cause and effect. The senses received valid impressions of external substance. These impressions remained in the imagination, which is, quote from Hobbes, nothing else but sense decaying or weakened by the absence of the object. Right, so you think of a light, right? You, you look at a bright light, you close your eyes, the light exists as an afterimage, but it spreads and dissolves and decays. I go on to, uh, went on to write, because Hobbes, like Hume, views the intellect as weaker than the passions, he rejects individual rationality as the final arbiter of moral values. In this sense, he takes the same approach as Kant. Both wish to found their moral systems on the most absolute basis of human nature. Kant rejects rational self-interest as intrinsically immoral, while Hobbes rejects rational self-interest as incompatible with the existence of a stable society. 
for the self-interest of the individual is to aggrandize his power at every opportunity. Thus, while Kant views the individual will as an immoral basis for morality, Hobbes views it as an impractical basis for morality. Where Kant substitutes duty for personal will, Hobbes substitutes obedience. Politically, the result of the two formulations is the same. Subjugation of the individual to the will of the enlightened despot. The central human drive Hobbes appeals to in his ethical formulations is the desire for survival. All human beings wish to survive. In the Hobbesian state of nature, this desire is manifested by the war of all against all. Men may desire peace, but gain great advantage from conquest. Since they do not fully know the minds of their neighbors, they cannot be sure that their desire for peace will be reciprocated. They may thus be tempted to launch a preemptive strike against them. Thus even a good person who wants peace has good reason for initiating force against his fellows. Throw in a good smattering of men who do not want peace and violent anarchy is a certainty. This Hobbesian state of nature is similar to Locke's. Two essential differences, however, remain. First, according to Hobbes, no right to property exists in a state of nature because of its emphasis on positive law. If something cannot be enforced, it is not a right. Thus, Locke's idea that the state is created not to establish the right to property but to defend it is rejected removing the possibility of rejecting a law that harms the right to property. Right, so for Locke, there is a right to property that exists given by God, given by the infusion of labor with an object. And the state is there to defend a pre-existing right to property. But for Hobbes, he says there's no property in a state of nature. There is only property if a government enforces it. Therefore, you can't flee a government to enforce a property right because it doesn't exist outside of the government's enforcement of it. And so you can't ever reject a government for failing to protect your property rights or from taking your property away because whatever property you're left with only exists because the government is willing to enforce property rights. They don't exist outside of the state and its enforcement. So, secondly, Locke argues that the state is a representative of the individual's natural moral authority, an authority which exists prior to the state and may be repealed if the state acts against the individual's authority, right? So you can think for yourself, you can reason for yourself, morality exists prior to the state, and the state is valid only insofar as it protects and respects and enforces your, the pre-existing morality that you have. Hobbes disagrees violently. He explicitly rejects the principle that the individual can discriminate between objective good and evil on the grounds that no such concepts exist, and I quote, But whatsoever is the object of any man's appetite or desire... That is it for which for his part calleth good and the object of his hate and aversion evil. Right? So he's saying, look, whatever is advantageous to his interests and pleasurable to his senses, he calls the good, and everything which goes against his preferences and pleasures, he calls the evil. According to Hobbes, quote, a law is the command of him or them that have the sovereign power given to those that be his or their subjects, declaring publicly and plainly that every one of them may do and what they must forswear to do. Hobbes reminds us that, quote, these words of good, evil, and contemptible are never used with relation to the person that useth them, 
there being nothing simply or absolutely so. Right? So there's nothing absolutely good, nothing absolutely evil. It is all based upon the power of the state. By identifying moral terms with individual preferences, Hobbes destroys the possibility of objective morality and thus of an absolute standard by which conflicts between individuals, including ruler and citizen, may be mediated. Because morality is not absolute, it becomes conditional, a kind of prudence or acting in ways which will ensure survival and success. Now, because our survival and success rest upon many considerations beyond our control, no absolute statements about either may be reliably made. Absolute morality is unconditional. Do this because it is good. Pragmatic prudence is conditional. If you want the greatest chance of success, do this. In Hobbes's word, quote, No discourse whatsoever can end in absolute knowledge of fact, past or to come. For as for the knowledge of fact, it is originally sense, forever after memory. And for the knowledge of consequences, which I have said before is called science, it is not absolute, but conditional. Right? So things go from the senses into the memory, into the imagination. No facts can be determined. This principle that what is good for us is evil to our enemies means that the individual, if he wishes to exist in a peaceful society, must surrender his right of individual judgment to a single ruler. This ruler cannot be a moral representative of the individual, for the good of the individual is subjective to his or her personal desires. Thus, the individual can have no recourse to a moral authority that transcends the will of the ruler. The only possibility of peace, of property, of mediation, is the will of the ruler. Yet Hobbes's approach would seem to raise a considerable danger to the stability of the state. If every individual desires power, and the ruler has no objective moral right to rule, such as revelation or a divine right to rule, why would ambitious individuals not be justified in trying to increase their power by replacing the ruler with themselves? Hobbes's reply is that revolution is both imprudent and unjust. It is imprudent for two reasons. The result of unsuccessful revolution is death, which contradicts the primal drive for survival, and revolution encourages others by example, sort of a Macbeth morality. It is unjust because it is a breaking of covenant. The ambitious individual has accepted the peace, stability, and authority of the state, as opposed to the anarchy of the state of nature, and thus cannot arbitrarily decide to break his implicit covenant. Thus, the state may not be either questioned undermined or rebelled against. As can be expected from this approach, the central question of political philosophy, what is the best form of the state, becomes, for Hobbes, largely irrelevant. Hobbes held that comparisons between these forms of government were largely academic, partly because they yielded only probable and not demonstrably true conclusions, partly because in any state, quote, the present government ought always to be preferred, maintained, and accounted best. So Hobbes defines injustice as no other than the not performance of a covenant. Regarding the individual's inability to break his covenant, Hobbes writes that, quote, He therefore that breaketh his covenant 
and consequently declareth that he thinks he may with reason do so, cannot be received into any society, that unite themselves for peace and defense, but by the error of them that receive him, now when he is received, be retained in it without seeing the danger of the error, which errors a man cannot reasonably reckon upon as the means of his security. Ostracism. Any attempt to revolt against the state, or even significantly reform it, would open up the possibility of reverting to a state of nature, and would involve breaking the implicit covenant between ruler and ruled. Thus we can see that while Hobbes begins with a sensual metaphysical approach, his identification of good with desired destroys any possibility of objective morality. Thus the individual is left with no moral defense against the dictates of the enlightened despot. The will of the Hobbesian ruler, like the Kantian despot, is the law, and thus may not be compared to or contradicted by any higher law. All right, let's conclusion time it, my friends. It is the most absolute, obvious, and errant nonsense to take the premise that human beings are selfish and destructive and violent against each other and say that the solution to that is to give one person or a group of people despotic, violent control over everyone else in society. It's complete madness. From e- Even if we accept all of the moral arguments, oh, nature red and tooth and claw, and nasty, brutish, short, violent, ugliness of war of all against all, the human beings are rapacious and predatory and find no way to limit their own selfish, destructive, predatory desires, then elevating one man with all of those selfish, destructive, predatory desires to have absolute dominion over all other men liberates even the possibility of minimizing violence through blowback from that ruler. In other words, you take somebody who wants to rape, pillage, destroy his fellow man and remove from him all negative consequences to his actions and give him limitless power to do so, somehow this is an improvement. All men are, to, all men are predatory on each other, so let's elevate a single man to a perfect apex predator, and that's going to solve society's problems. It is create a rule, exclude an individual. Create a rule, exclude a group. Create a rule, exclude yourself. All men are predatory, so let's give one man perfect predatory power. Even by his own premises, none of this makes any sense at all. At least in a state of nature, if we accept the Hobbesian argument, at least in a state of nature, human beings are limited in their aggression by blowback. Elevate them to a perfect dictator and the power of an absolute state. Well, what does he think is going to happen by his own admission argument? Now again, Hobbes is working within an existing system, but why do we even know about Hobbes? Why is he considered so powerful? Because he served the needs of the new, more secular style of rulers to get people to submit themselves to their predations. That your rights only exist because of the government, that there's no morality outside the government, that you have no right to rebel against the government, you have no right to even question or criticize the government, because that might lead to a dissolution of it, and that you are somehow responsible for the government's authority over you and power over you and destruction of you, because you entered into this contract to avoid predatory human beings by elevating one perfect predator to have limitless power over you. It's madness. It's complete madness. But, of course, it served 
the needs of the secular rulers. It gave, like a baton, a new justification for limitless state power that formerly had been enjoyed by those who accepted the divine right of kings. It gave them a new argument to shut up their critics and expand their power. That's why we know of the guy, not because he was so brilliant or consistent or wise. Or We know about him because he served the needs of the new rulers who had to find a way to subjugate their citizens after the scientific revolution of Francis Bacon had eliminated, for many people, the justification of the divine right of kings. Oh, we need a new justification for state power. Hey, this guy's rambling on about this kind of stuff. Yeah, let's make him famous, because that serves us. So that's the reality. The history of philosophers is the history of those who served power and justified power, at least until somewhat more recently. If you're enjoying this series, please, please help out. Freedomain.com forward slash donate. I say this, I know it's going out to donors mostly at the moment, but if you hear of this from elsewhere, or I'm sure it will end out in the mainstream sooner or later, freedomain.com forward slash donate. Thanks everyone so much. Let me know what you think.